from Daniel 6. Hear the word of the Lord. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in the connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the, ju- signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had the windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish, The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths 
and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its truth. Thank you for its power. We pray that you would use it, that you would speak. We want to hear from you. We want to hear from you, our great God. So speak through your word, and may your spirit convict our hearts, comfort our hearts, give us what we need, even if it's not what we want. And may we not just be hearers of your word, may we be doers as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, We are right in the middle of our journey through the book of Daniel. We're going to look at Daniel 6 today. And then next week, we're going to take a break because as I introduced Daniel, the first six chapters, um, they're, they're in the form of a narrative and they're chronological. So, so you journey with Daniel from the time that he was a teenager all the way until he's in his late 80s. Um, you, you journey with Daniel as he's under the power of, of the Babylonian Empire and then you journey uh, with him until now in, in chapter 6, the, the Medo-Persians are, are now the ones who are in power. We, we saw King Nebuchadnezzar, we saw King Belshazzar, and now we see King Darius of, of Persia. Um, but then in chapter 7, all the way through the end of chapter 12, the chronology ends, and we see different visions and dreams that Daniel had throughout his life. And so uh, th- there's just a very clear shift. So I wanted us to just take, take a quick break. Daniel, it's obviously a lot of verses we're reading through, a lot of content that we're covering. So we're going to take a break next week. Next week, uh, we have parent-child dedication, and uh, Avery's actually going to be preaching Psalm 110. So we're going to return to our long-term approach to the Psalms and he's going to preach another messianic psalm uh, next Sunday. So um, we're going to take a break after, after this week. Uh, Daniel, time and time again, has proved himself to be a faithful servant of the Most High God in exile. There, there are two prominent themes, and they're related in, in Daniel 6. The first is, is Daniel's faithfulness. He is unwaveringly faithful to his God. And then we see God's faithfulness. God is unwaveringly faithful to his people. And so as we begin this morning, I want you to maybe ask yourself the question, are you being faithful to your God in exile? 
Because we live in exile. We, we live in a world that, that is opposed to, to some degree to the ways in the kingdom of God. Are you being faithful to your God and are you trusting your God to deliver you? What I'm going to do this morning is tell the story again. We're going to walk through the story uh, scene by scene. And then I want us to, to try to give four answers to that, that question. How, how can we remain faithful to God in exile? Because for Daniel, exile has not ended yet. It's not ended. He's hoping for that day. He's longing for that day. He's praying for that day. But that day has not come. A new king has arrived on the scene, and Daniel is still working as a politician in a pagan empire. He's still working for the Lord as he works for pagan rulers. I know sometimes it can be frustrating, especially if you're in a place of work that is obviously godless, where it's, it's difficult for you to to be an Orthodox Christian and do your job. For, mo- for, for a lot of us, that's not true, but it's becoming more and more common for it to be difficult for Christians to work and be faithful. The question is, are we going to do it? Are we going to do it? Uh, Daniel 6 begins uh, really where, where Daniel 5 ended. At the end of Daniel 5, we see a shift of power. Uh, we see um, on, in verse 29, then Belshazzar, who was the co-regent of the Babylonian Empire, gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. This was a reward for Daniel's ability to read the handwriting on the wall and interpret it, but the interpretation was nothing but a judgment of King Belshazzar, and that judgment entailed the defeat of the Babylonian Empire at the hands of the Persians. And what we know from history is that yesterday, in fact... Over 2,500 years ago, yesterday, the Persians marched into Babylon and, and destroyed the Babylonian Empire and established the Persian Empire. Um, what we see is in verse 30 of chapter 5, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, there's a little bit of a historical tension, at least on the surface, when it comes to Darius, because what we know clearly from historical records is that the first king of Persia that ruled in Babylon, the king of Persia who conquered the Babylonians, was Cyrus the Great. It was King Cyrus. There's no mention of a King Darius. So it prevents us, or it presents us with a little bit of a problem. Uh, there are a couple ways that we can, we can work around this. I'm actually going to send you guys another article this week so that we can really dive into some of those issues. But uh, without getting into it too much, there is enough reason here for us to conclude that Darius and Cyrus are the same person. Okay, so uh, Cyrus is likely Darius's throne name. So, so a lot of rulers, whenever they ascended to the throne, they would take on a, a throne name. And so uh, a lot of people believe that, that Darius the Mede is Cyrus the Great, it's, that it's the same person. Uh, well, I'll, I'll send you some stuff. The other possibility, as we saw with Belshazzar, is that we just don't have all the records. And, you know, 100 years from now, they may do some archaeological digs, and they may find that there, in fact, was a 
King Darius who, who was on the scene at that time. So, uh, but, but suffice it to say, if you're, if you're confused, if you're like, no, I know a little bit of this history, and I know that it's King Cyrus that was the first king of the Persians when they entered Babylon. Darius and Cyrus are essentially the same person. And King Darius here, as he's, as he's assumed power in Babylon, he's already the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, but as they conquer Babylon, he has before him, they've killed the king, they've killed the rulers, but they have all of these lords, they have all of these rulers who were in Babylon, and they're trying to establish, he's trying to establish his reign, his political leadership in Persia. So what we see is that he sets over his kingdom 120 satraps over the whole kingdom, and, and over those 120 satraps, he, he puts three high officials, and Daniel was, was one of those officials. Now, a satrap was, you know, if you're, if you're confused, if you've never, you know, uh, if you didn't study what it means to be a satrap in college, um, a, a satrap is just a political protector of the kingdom. So, so satraps were, were put in place to make sure that no corruption was happening. The problem is most of the satraps were corrupt. Um, and so knowing that, Darius places three officials to supervise all 120 of these satraps who are, who are ruling in, in the kingdom. He has these three officials who are over them, and Daniel is elevated to this position. Uh, so he's not just given the position of a satrap, but Daniel, who's an old man now in, in Babylon, he is, is made you know, the man, essentially, because not only is he made one of these officials, but he is given authority over the officials, Daniel is one of the most powerful people, not only in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar and under Belshazzar, but now under Darius, Daniel is still remaining one of the most powerful people in the kingdom. Um, Obviously, Darius deeply trusted Daniel. So as Darius has, has come in, he's, he's spent some time getting to know Daniel. We don't know exactly how long this was. Typically, kings, whenever they were establishing political leadership, that would happen within the first year of their reign. So it could have been a few months. It could have been a full year. But Darius has gotten to know Daniel. And, and he sees him as a man of integrity, a man of character, a man that he can trust most of his kingdom with. He places most of the kingdom in Daniel's hands. So why was he chosen? The text tells us in in verse 3, then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. As, As Darius interacted with Daniel, he noticed that Daniel was different. He was different from the rest of of the satraps. He was different from the rest of the officials, the rest of the politicians in Babylon. There's something unique about Daniel. So Daniel, now in his late 80s, stood out from the other rulers in the kingdom in the same way that, that he had stood out whenever he first arrived in Babylon as a teenager. You see this lifelong consistency of integrity and character and, and righteousness. Daniel had distinguished himself. Darius planned to give him full authority and full power, and believe it or not, his co-workers did not like that. So, so what we see next is these high officials, these satraps, verse 4, then the high officials and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. They want to destroy Daniel. They, they want to get rid of Daniel. But Why? Why do they want to come after this old man? Why do they want to come after Daniel, who they're going to admit later he hasn't done anything wrong? Well, a couple reasons. The first one's obviously envy. They're envious. 
You have a new... Okay, first of all, if you are a Babylonian uh, uh, ruler and official and, and you're trying to gain position now in the Persian Empire, you know, and Daniel is not only not a Persian, he's not a Babylonian, he's a Jew. He's an exile. The only reason he's there is because they conquered tiny little Judah and they brought Daniel in as an essential slave. And, and they're placing... And, and this little slave is now one of the most powerful men in the entire kingdom. They were envious of his position. They were angry that this foreigner from insignificant Judah had been promoted to such a prominent position in Persia. They, they, they wanted the favor that Daniel had with Darius. They wanted the power that Daniel now had. Daniel is an overseer over most of the kingdom of Persia, which is now being established in the city of Babylon. Daniel's the man, and they want that for themselves. So they want to they get Daniel out of the way so that one of them can take his place. But they're also really worried. Okay, as I said, at this time, most of these politicians... Okay, politicians are, are corrupt, you know, today. Politicians have always been corrupt. Okay, they, they, they've always been corrupt. And so, like, with a righteous overseer, you know, Daniel's the hall monitor, you know? Like, like Daniel, Daniel's the... He's going to do what's right. He's going to follow the law. He's going to honor the king. He, he's going to do the right thing. And he's in power over them. So any, any attempts, any desires that they have to try to gain more power or to, to be corrupt or to embezzle, there's no chance they're going to do that. And so they're worried about their own positions because Daniel's a man of character and he would snuff out any corruption. They knew he would do that. You see, the officials, they want rid of Daniel. They want to get him out of the way. But they have a problem. Daniel is holy. Daniel is holy. Daniel's co-workers could not find any fault in him. All they want to do is they're like, okay, this dude is 87 years old, or however old he was. He's in his 80s. And he's been a politician from the time that he was in his early 20s. There's got to be some skeleton in the closet. There's got to be some scandal. There's got to be some, some measure, some example of, of disloyalty, something that we can bring up, something that we can find and we can present before the king and say, listen, I know you like this guy, but I, you didn't know this about him. And they find nothing. Daniel was an 80-something-year-old politician with no history of scandal. Nothing. I feel like, I feel like in the, the political climate we're in now, it's just... You, another week another scandal you know something's being dug up from the past especially with social media you know it's like oh why did you tweet this you know eight years ago and, and it's another scandal that Daniel there was nothing on Daniel absolutely nothing the, their, their problem was that Daniel was holy so what are they to do because they're not giving up on this venture Daniel's got to go Daniel's got to go so so what are they going to do if well they they think about it and they realize, you know what? We actually do have some dirt on Daniel. We do have some dirt on Daniel. Daniel is faithful to his God. Daniel obeys his God. Daniel chooses loyalty to his God even over loyalty to the king. That's the dirt that they had on Daniel, was that he was faithful to his God. They knew that the only way they could get rid of Daniel was to look for something in connection, as, as Daniel 6 says, with the law of his God. So they sought to use Daniel's faithfulness against him. 
So they devise a plan. They devise a plan. They convince the king to sign a decree forcing everyone in the kingdom to offer prayer only to the king for 30 days with a threat of death for rebels. So I know that sounds crazy. It's, you know, it's almost like, you want me to, you want me to do what now? Like, I mean, it just feels really random. But this isn't actually as random as it sounds. This, this was a common thing to do. And the argument could have been politically, okay, Darius, you are actually dividing up your kingdom by having all these different rulers. You know, you're, you're compartmentalizing it. You're saying, okay, we've got 120 satraps, and we have three, you know, officials who are over them. And then you've got Daniel, who you're wanting to give some prominent position over them. And so all the people who are under them have specific supervisors and specific rulers, and you're drawing attention away from yourself as king. So here's what you can do in light of all this political maneuvering that you have going on. You just require that for 30 days that no one pray to any other god except for you. They pray to you. It's, it's a sign of allegiance to the king. You see, the officials didn't care anything about anybody else in that kingdom. They didn't care. It wouldn't have been a problem for anybody else in that kingdom other than Jews. Because, I mean, they're polytheistic anyway. Oh, sure, we'll add, yeah, we'll add this king into it. We'll pray to him too. It's no problem. They knew Daniel so well. They knew that this would get Daniel out of the way because they knew that not even for 30 days would Daniel go without praying to his God. They knew They knew that they could get the king to sentence Daniel to death by forcing Daniel to choose between loyalty to the king or loyalty to his God because they knew that Daniel was going to choose loyalty to his God every single time. Daniel is then faced with a choice, and it's so anticlimactic. Okay, so the king decides to sign the document in verse 9. In verse 9, therefore King Darius signed the document and the injunction. And then, you know, we're kind of expecting, what's Daniel going to do? What's Daniel going to do? Because he's so wise, and we've seen him in the past, how he's approached the king, and how he's made his case, and he's been faithful every single time. And we're expecting some dramatic scene here, some, some meeting between Darius and Daniel, as we saw between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. And in verse 10, it's so anticlimactic, it's so ordinary. Like, I hope you feel how ordinary verse 10 is. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. That's such a boring, ordinary verse. Daniel is threatened with death. There's this decree from the king. We don't get inside the head. Daniel's not worried. Daniel's not scared. We don't see any conversations. Do you know how Daniel responded to this decree? That for 30 days, you have to stop worshiping your God. 30 days. It's not even forever. It's not even like you got to replace you know, the king with your God. Hey, for 30 days. Just for 30 days, stop praying to your God. Only pray to the king. And what did Daniel do in response? He heard about the law. He finished up his work. He went to his house. He kicked his shoes off. He went to the window. He opened it up. He got on his knees and he prayed. And when he prayed, he gave thanks to God. And what does it say at the end of verse 10? This is the most significant part of that verse. As he had done previously as he had done previously. This isn't, this isn't like when Daniel is needing to, to reveal the dream to King Nebuchadnezzar. You remember that? 
Remember whenever he, he needed to know what King Nebuchadnezzar's dream was? And he obviously can't know that information. Like, it's impossible for us to, to if you had a dream last night, you're like, hey, tell me what I dreamed. I can't tell you that. Like, I can make something up, and I might get it right, because I know you guys. Like, I know that, like, Mississippi State fans, like, dreamed of orange. Like, you just were like, just orange everywhere, just haunting me. The Tennessee Volunteers. Sorry, guys. I, I just had to do that. Um, but <laughs> oh, I hear it. I hear it. Um, so Daniel, what does he do? He has to go, and he goes to his friends, and he says, hey, we got to pray. we got to implore upon the Lord to give us the answer to this dream. I don't know anything about it. Please. This is not Daniel going and praying to God in response to the decree. Do you know why Daniel went home and prayed to God in the way that he did? Because that's what he did every day. It was just another day for Daniel. Just another day. And you have, these, you have these satraps and you have these officials and they're scheming and they're looking. They're like, all right, it's signed. We've got him. And you can imagine them seeing Daniel at work the next day. You know, and they're like, oh boy, he's going to get it. Let's just wait and see. Let's just wait and see. When's he going to pray? When's he going to pray? And they're like all stressed out and they're like, you know, just watching him. And Daniel's just going about his business. He's doing his job. He's working faithfully for the king like he always has. Clocks out, goes home does what he does every day every day walk in go to the window get on his knees and he prayed um the king's decree did not alter his devotion to god not at all not even not even the threat of death could stop daniel's ordinary obedience um his devotion to god is marked by his discipline right it's second nature for daniel well, what do you mean, why am I praying? I do it every day. I do it every day, so I brush my teeth. And if Daniel's like all of us, like, I don't even do that every day. You know what I'm saying? See, we don't have any dentists here, so I can say that. Um, but it's, it's, it's what he does. But notice, notice what else. His devotion, even knowing that if he gets caught, he's going to die, is marked with joy. He, as he, what's he praying for? What's he, he gives thanks to his God. We're even given the content of the prayer. You know, you would think that, you know, some of it would have been, God, please protect me. Please keep me safe. Please do Thank you. Thank you. His, his devotion is marked with joy, but his devotion is also marked with this holy rebellion. Daniel's protesting. Now, he's, he's doing what he does every single day, but this king has said, okay, for 30 days you can't do this. He's like, well, I'm rebelling against that. I'm rebelling against this decree. I, I am loyal. Daniel was loyal to his overseers. Daniel was loyal to the kings that, that were in power. He was, more so than, than I think I would, I would be. I, I would be so tempted to not be loyal to some pagan, evil, ruthless ruler. But Daniel was faithful. He was loyal to the kings who were in power over him. But not, not when it comes to this decree. He protests. He rebels. Daniel was a man of prayer. No matter what ruler he served, no matter where he lived, no matter who held the power, no matter what rank he held, no matter what his friends or enemies thought of him, no matter how risky his devotion was, nothing and no one could change the communion Daniel shared with his God. No one could change that. He knew God. He loved God. And he spent time with him. And he was going to do it until the day that he died. And he was going to do it even if it was that prayer itself that would be the vehicle of his death. 
So, so Daniel remains devoted. Well, the satraps, the high officials, they catch him. They catch him. Of course they do. All they got to do is go to his house. They know Daniel so well. They know he's going to be faithful. They go to his house. There he is. There he is. He's praying. Let's go tell on him. Let's go tell on him. And they go back and they tell the king, hey, remember that uh, law you just signed? Remember that one? The one that can't be changed and the one that says anybody who violates it goes into the lion's den and dares. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember doing that. Okay, well, um, Daniel, the exile, Daniel, the Judean, Daniel, the one that you have promoted, that Daniel, Daniel, the guy that you love, well, he's praying to his God. He's praying to his God. And Darius is heartbroken. It's almost like you can see him, like he's been duped. He's been duped and he feels it. Verse 13. They answered and said before the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. You see what they added there? They want, they want the king to focus on the loyalty part. It's not just about prayer. It's about loyalty. His loyalty lies with his God. He pays no attention to you which is not a fair description of Daniel's situation. Daniel does pay attention to the king, just not when it comes to obeying or disobeying his God. Verse 14, Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. He labored till the sun went down to rescue him. He tries to save Daniel. The king, who has all authority in Persia, all authority in the city of Babylon, tries his hardest to come up with a way to save Daniel, and he can't do it. He signed this law, the law of the Medes and the Persians, this this law that cannot be revoked, not even by the king himself. And And he's distraught over it. He's devastated because he loves Daniel, and he knows that Daniel hasn't done anything deserving of death except for this law that he has created. Darius was devastated. He had been manipulated. But then Darius was hopeful. He, he does carry out this unchangeable decree. He does carry it out. He, he carries it out with much hesitation. But he sentences Daniel to death. He, he sends him to the lion's den. Daniel's hopeful. May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. King Darius is essentially telling Daniel, I can't save you. I want to save you so much, but I can't do it. May your God who you serve, may he, may he save you. May he deliver you. May he do for you what I cannot do for you. And then in verse 17, Daniel's thrown into the lion's den, and a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. That nothing might be changed. There's this finality. It's over. Daniel is facing certain death. The lions were hungry. The den was sealed. There was no way out. There was no way to escape. And we see later, we see later that when when the story is reversed on those satraps and officials and they're actually thrown into the lion's den, what happens to them? They are mauled. They are destroyed immediately. Even before they hit the ground, they are torn to pieces by these lions. That's the situation that Daniel is thrown into. It's certain death. 
It's certain death. Then the king went to his palace in verse 18, spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. He's not fasting out of religious purposes. He's probably too sick to eat. He's too sick to eat because he knows, he knows what's happening inside that den. He knows that his favorite official is being torn limb from limb. Verse 19, at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And he cries out to Daniel. He doesn't cry out because he thinks Daniel's alive. He's grieving. He cries out. He cries out for Daniel. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you continually serve been able to deliver you from the lions? He's not confident in that cry. He's begging in a sense. And then in verse 22, or verse 21, Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. You see, Daniel was undeserving of death in the lion's den. And and the lack of harm that we see in Daniel corresponds to his lack of blame. He was blameless. He didn't do anything to deserve this death and, and he's preserved by the Lord. Is the living God able to deliver you? Yes, yes, he is. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. How was Daniel saved? Daniel was not delivered by his God on the basis of his religious performance. Okay, we're tempted to think that. We're tempted to think, well, well, of course, of course God saved Daniel because look how faithful he was. I mean, the guy has like racked up all these years of obedience to God. I mean, it's, it's time for God to deliver for him, you know? That's, that's, not, that's not what's happening here. You see, Daniel prayed to God the way that he prayed to God because that's what he did every single day he just wanted to be with God he just wanted to commune with God it's it's not as if you know Daniel needed to reach some quota of prayer and he finally reached it and now God's going to deliver him from death it's like oh man you've been praying to me so much you've done so so many good things it's time for me to do something good for you this wasn't an exchange God by his gracious and powerful will decided to deliver Daniel Daniel would have been faithful. He was willing to die. Daniel did not think that he would live. God saved Daniel because he is the living God who saves his people, who delivers his people. Darius, he he picked up on this in his decree. He made this decree that people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. He says, for he is the living God. God enduring forever his kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end he delivers and rescues see Darius had asked that question earlier he just hoped may the God who you serve may he deliver you he asked has your God been able to deliver you you know I've always thought what, what happened that night? Because it, it was an overnight thing, right? It wasn't like he was just kind of thrown in and they just like looked at their watches and then pulled the stone back. I mean, 
They threw him in there and then they left and they were coming back the next morning. And an angel came and shut the mouths of the lions overnight. What happened that night? You know? Like, was, like, was the, did the angel stay all night long and, they just kind of, and, and Daniel and the angel just kind of chatted up? I mean, did, did Daniel like ever worry for a second? Was he just like, you know, kind of grinning and bearing and just waiting on these, these lions to just devour him and they just keep not doing that? You know? I mean, is he just walking? How stressed was he? Did he sleep? I mean, he cuddled up with the lions? I mean, you know, was he scratching their belly? You know, I, I don't know. But what we know is that Daniel should have died and he lived because God saved him. Daniel was faithful in exile. God was faithful to deliver Daniel from death. There are four answers to the question I asked at the beginning. How can we remain faithful to God in exile? Four answers that we learn from uh, Daniel 6. First, work for the Lord when you're at work. Work for the Lord when you're at work. Working for the Lord as you work for people brings the kingdom of God to bear on the kingdoms of man. So when you're playing by God's rules in your place of work, when you're living according to God's ways in your place of work, you are bringing the kingdom of God and its ways and its principles to bear on your workplace. Um, The way that you work whether faithfully, excellently, or not, is a daily witness to God. It's, it's a daily witness to his power, his grace, his sovereignty. The decisions that you make and the behaviors that you demonstrate at work should reflect the word of God and should reflect the ways of God. So we should be like Daniel and distinguish ourselves in the world. Kingdom principles should be seen in us. So a question for you. Would your coworkers, in their description of you, Use the fruits of the Spirit. Okay? Because what did Darius know about Daniel? Darius knew he was a man he could trust. He was trustworthy. He was righteous. He did the right thing. He had, he was, he had integrity. He was a man of high character, so he places him in this prominent position. What did, what did Daniel's co-workers know about him? We can't find any dirt on this guy. He's too holy. He's too righteous. He has too much integrity. We got to get rid of him. And what else did they know about him? oh man, Daniel's so faithful to his God. Maybe we can find something in connection to his faithfulness to his God. His co-workers knew that of him. His boss, his, his king knew that of Daniel. So would your co-workers use, for example, the fruits of the Spirit to describe you? Are you known as a person of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Do people use those words in your place of work to describe you in the way that you work? Paul writes in Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel was known for his holiness and his faithfulness to God. His holiness gained him favor. His faithfulness nearly cost him his life. How can we be known for our holiness and faithfulness at work? How can we work unto the Lord as we work for man? Okay, three suggestions here. First, reject the false dichotomy between secular and sacred work. Reject that. Reject this mindset that sacred work, work for the Lord, is reserved for ministers, is reserved for people in theological institutes, 
is reserved for church people, church work. And I do secular work because I don't work for the church. You have to eliminate that separation. That is a false dichotomy. You don't have to be a vocational minister to work for the Lord. Your life is not divided as if you work for the world from 9 to 5, you work for your family from 5 until bed, and then you work for the Lord when you serve at church on Sundays or you come to church on Wednesday nights. Our lives aren't compartmentalized like that. We are who we are no matter what we're doing and no matter who we're with. So you are a citizen of God's kingdom, and that means that our lives in totality should be lived in submission to the king and his ways. So in short, you can glorify God through your work no matter how unchristian your boss is. Okay? You can glorify God at work no matter how secular your, your, your place of business or your place of work is. It did not get more secular and pagan than the Babylonian and Persian empires. Okay? Daniel's a politician for Persia. He's a politician for Babylon. And that was his life's work. Do you think Daniel had his dream job? Do you think when Daniel was eight, when he was 10, that he was just dreaming of being a politician for pagan empires? No. No, but that's where Daniel found himself. And Daniel didn't just find himself there by chance. The Lord placed him there. So, and I'm not saying it's bad to dream. And I'm not saying it's bad to have a dream job and it's bad to have goals. But the Lord has you where you are for a reason. The Lord has you where you are for a reason. And, and a big part of that reason is for you to glorify him, to live for him, so that it would be known to everyone there that there's something different about you, where you distinguish yourself in the way that you live out the gospel among your coworkers. So reject that false dichotomy. The second, the second principle for working unto the Lord Remember your God-given identity. Okay, Daniel knew that he was a covenant member of God's people. And so because he knew who he was, he lived first and foremost under the law of God. And then, and then he lived and respected the law of the Persians, the law of the Babylonians as far as he could. But first and foremost, he lived under the law of God because he knew who he was. He proved himself to be a man of character and integrity, not to elevate himself in the kingdom, but because his God demanded it. Daniel's not playing games. He's not just, you know, trying to be righteous and and a man of integrity so that he can advance in the kingdom. He's doing that because that's what his God expects of him. Um, So you walk into your place of work every single day as a child of God. You go to work every single day as a kingdom citizen, as an eternal heir of the kingdom of God. You have been set apart by God for God. So work like you believe all of that's true. Okay, so remember your God-given identity. The the next thing, look forward to your God-promised future. You ever wonder why Daniel opens his windows and prays toward Jerusalem? Daniel prayed with his windows open toward Jerusalem out of his hope for the fulfillment of God's promise to bring his people back to Jerusalem. He's praying for the end of the exile. So Daniel worked with diligence and integrity in exile for foreign and pagan kings for most of his life. And yet that entire time, 
Decade after decade after decade, he's going home after work, he's opening his window and he's praying to God, longing, longing for the return to the promised land. Longing for God to fulfill his promise to his people that they will not be in exile forever, that he will return them home. Daniel had been in exile for 70 to 75 years, yet he never gave up hope. He never gave up hope. His reputation remained consistent from his teenage years through his 80s. When you hope in the glory that is to come, it totally changes your perspective on your work now. The glory that awaits you one day that you should long for and pray for does not compare to any struggles that you have now to work for a secular employer. So knowing the hope that is to come, trusting in this God-promised future, you can work for God's glory now, even in the most secular workplace with excellence and wisdom Encourage. So work unto the Lord. Okay, the second lesson, second, second connection we can see from Daniel 6. Be confident in the plans and purposes of God. Daniel is unjustly accused and attacked by his co-workers, yet he did not seek to defend himself or his reputation. Did you notice that? Daniel's silent. The only, thing, the only things he's saying are prayers to God. He did not seek to vindicate himself. He coped with these unjust attacks on him with full confidence in the Lord. So the word for us here is that no scheme of man can change God's plans and purposes for your life. Look at all the scheming from the satraps and the officials. And then even King Darius, after he's duped into signing this law, he can't even rescue Daniel from it. It's like, I'm sorry, man. It's unfortunate, but you got to die. That wasn't God's plan for Daniel. That wasn't God's purpose for Daniel. So not even evil scheming co-workers or, you know, a dopey boss could keep Daniel from walking in the plans and purposes of God. What the officials in Persia intended for evil, God turned for good. And the same is true for you and me. So be confident in the plans and purposes of God. Third, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Um, Throughout his life, Daniel demonstrated this consistency in his convictions and in his courage. Um, We learn four principles about trusting God from Daniel's example here in in Daniel 6. Daniel trusted God, and, and that trust was cultivated through daily habit. We notice that, right? That Daniel was in communion with God. What do you notice about that? that Daniel just instinctively, instinctively left work, went home, opened the window, got on his knees and prayed. What we call those? Habits. Habits. It, he's, he's barely even thinking. It's instinctual. It's like when you're driving and you end up, you know, just at, like I'll be driving and I just end up at work and I'm like, man, how did I get here? You know, like it's almost just second nature. It's just instinctual. You're just, because, you've, because you do it every single day, Right? Our habits shape us. Our character or our lack of character, it's forged in this crucible of daily habits. So in one sense, we become what we do. We become what we do. Daniel was a man who by nature trusted God. It was just second nature for Daniel to trust God because that was cultivated. 
That was cultivated through these daily habits. Habits are, they create these reflexes. Daniel's reflex to suffering was trust, not worry. His reflex was trust. Um, when you think about reflexes, okay, so this is the difference between me and my wife, Erica. Okay, the difference between me and Erica is I was raised like around like basketball, baseball, just any kind of ball, and Erica was not, okay? So, so that's, that's a big difference. So if you just throw a ball at me and I'm not looking, if you throw a ball at me, my reflex is to try to catch it. I, I do it just, it's just second day, I, just, I try to catch it every single time. If you, if you throw a ball at Erica, her reflex is to duck, okay? She, she wants out of the way of it, okay? That's, but she doesn't think about it, and I don't think about it. It's just how we naturally react because of how we were formed as we were growing up. If you want to become a person whose trust in God is, a, is second nature, it's a reflex to every situation that you face, you have to develop a habit of spending time with the Lord. Do you actually think that you're going to trust God when you really need him if you're not spending time with him? If you're not communing with him, if you're not praying, if you're not reading your Bible, if you're not spending time with God's people, sharpening one another in community. Trusting God is cultivated through daily habit. But trusting God also anchors your heart to the promises of God. And I'm not going to mention much about it because we already talked about it. But Daniel, Daniel's heart was tethered tethered, connected to the promises of God. So when you're trusting in God, you're trusting in his promises that he has laid out for you in his word, and it anchors your heart to them. Trusting God also focuses on pleasing God rather than on specific outcomes. We saw that in Daniel 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Like they, they were willing to die. They're like, hey, God may save us, he may not, but we're not disobeying our God and bowing to that statue. We're not doing it. Daniel here, he's not concerned with the outcome. He is focused on pleasing his God. He is just going to obey him. So trusting God is independent of outcomes, we trust God's power to deliver us, but we also trust his grace to sustain us if he doesn't deliver us out of a situation. We trust his wisdom that he knows best, and we trust that to lose everything but to have communion with God is gain. Finally, trust in God prepares you to live with conviction and courage. As we've said, you know, our culture is continuing to shift in a post-Christian direction. Orthodox Christianity, it's, it's becoming not only unpopular, but threatening, threatening to the moral revolution that we're seeing. Um, so will we have the courage to stand in our convictions? You may, you may one day be faced with a choice, cave on a conviction or lose, or lose your job. You may be faced with that. Will you be ready to respond with conviction and courage? Um, you won't if you're not trusting the Lord. Daniel was sentenced to death for praying to his God, and he didn't deny it. He didn't fight it. He went to his death. He didn't conform. How was he able to do that? He trusted God. He trusted God. So trust in the Lord so that you'll be prepared to suffer for his sake if necessary. The last thing we see in Daniel, though, the last thing we see in Daniel is the most important thing. Jesus is the better Daniel. Okay, so, so think about Jesus, think about Daniel. Like Daniel, Jesus was sentenced to death because of his faithfulness to God in a hostile culture. Why was Jesus sent to the cross? They had to find something against him, and they had to make something up because he was blameless. He was undeserving of death in the same way that Daniel was undeserving of death. But unlike Daniel... Jesus actually tasted death. 
Okay, Jesus was not delivered from death without tasting it. The mouth of the lion of death was not shut by an angel to protect Jesus from it. No angel came to save him from that cross. Jesus was bitten by death so that we never have to face it. Jesus fully absorbed the wrath of God against sinners. He was completely forsaken by God in your place and in my place. And he actually died by crucifixion. And then after Jesus died, what did they do? They took his body down from the cross and they put him in a den. They put him in a tomb. And they rolled a stone over the entrance to that tomb. Finality. Certain death. Story over. And then what happened? God delivered God delivered. God delivered not only Daniel through an angel, God delivered his son through resurrection. Jesus took back his life. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, God has delivered you. There is deliverance from final death in the person and work of Jesus. So my question to you this morning is, will you trust him? Will you trust in the God who delivers and rescues sinners, not on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of his grace? Let me, let me pray for us. God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for delivering your people. We see an example of Daniel's faithfulness, and we're challenged by that. But we are simply blown away at your faithfulness. Daniel is a part of a people who are in exile because of their sin and because of their idolatry. Because of their unfaithfulness to you. Because of their spiritual adultery. And you remain faithful to your people even in exile. Even through disobedience. Even as you're disciplining them. You never give up on your people. You never give up on us. And seeing how you delivered Daniel from death, from a hopeless situation, gives us hope. It gives us confidence that we can face suffering, that we can face persecution, that we can face physical death itself without fear, fully trusting in you, knowing that no scheme of man can stop your plans and purposes for us. And knowing that we have this God-promised future awaiting us. So help us. Help us to set our eyes on the new heavens and the new earth. Because in that place, sin will be no more. And death will be no more. And there will be no more enemies. Only friends. Only your presence. Only your glory. Only your joy. For us to bask in forever. So as we, as we work in secular places and as we live in the world without being of the world, help us to do so, looking forward to that day of full, unhindered communion with you. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I want to invite you to stand now. We're going to respond through